check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Today's episode is a real treat. You get to listen to my conversation with Dr. Susan Newman. And I reached out to Dr. Newman because I love her book, all about words that she wrote with Tanya Wright. It's all about teaching vocabulary to young children. And so I reached out to her to talk about that. And then I realized that she has done so much more than write that book. She's the editor of three volumes of the Handbook of Early Literacy Research published by Guilford. She has written many other books. She's a specialist in early literacy development. She even served as the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Elementary and Secondary Education. What an incredible career she's had, and yet she was so kind to sit down and talk with me, and I know you'll get a lot out of our conversation about how the science of reading applies to preschool. Welcome, Dr. Newman. Well, it's nice to be with you. <laughs> Thanks so much for, for agreeing to talk with me today about early, early learning and um, the things you've learned over the years. You have quite a background. Could you walk us through what got you into education and, and up until what you're doing now? Sure. So I began in education, not necessarily because I planned to be a teacher. Um, I really did not plan to be a teacher so much as um, someone who is really interested in issues of poverty. Um, Issues that I felt education could address, but my central focus initially was how do we get people out of poverty? How do we ensure that so many of our children who are not successful can be more successful. And that brought me into um, becoming a teacher. Um, I was a fifth grade teacher, began uh, there um, in a high poverty school district. And I ended up feeling I was not doing very very much good for these kids. Uh, I loved them to death. I Uh, gave them a lot of emotional and social support, but I felt that I wasn't developing the kinds of teaching mechanisms that could really enable them to be successful. I also recognized that at fifth grade, these children were already so far behind. My highest learners were on the second grade level. And frankly, as a new teacher, I just didn't know what to do. I mean, I was beside myself in trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what I could actually do to support them. And so I went back to school and I became a reading specialist. And in becoming a reading specialist, I enjoyed that. Working with small groups, helping children become better readers. But then again, I was stymied by the fact that many times when you're a reading specialist, you take children out of the room, out of the particular context, then put them back in the room. And you know what? They end up doing just as poorly as if I had never taken them out. Mm -hmm. So my frustration continued. That wasn't the route I wanted to take. And so I went back to graduate school and eventually got my PhD and said, how could I do research that was applied that could really help children um, more directly than what I felt I was doing initially? And so I got into higher education, first at Eastern Connecticut State University, then um, at Temple University, University of Michigan. And then I went to government and I became assistant secretary for elementary and secondary education under George W. Bush. And there I learned a different set of skills. Um, I learned how we can begin to really focus on equity issues related to creating federal guidelines and 
recommendations that could really ensure children's success. So then I went back to the university and now I'm at uh, NYU um, and enjoying my years doing research and doing teaching as well. So what are your areas of research right now and what, what, what type of classes do you teach? I teach um, in early childhood. My focus is on helping um, teachers or prospective teachers learn how do children learn in these very early years. And one of the things I focus on, and sometimes I feel successful and not successful, <laughs> is I feel to be a good early childhood teachers. You have to get in the mindset of the child. You have to understand what being a child is like. And as a result, I think what we begin to do is we develop interactions and programs that are more sensitive to the very young child at all ages of, you know, from infancy through pre-K. So that's what I primarily do. I do a good deal of research also on looking at screen media and how screen media can affect young children, um, as well as programming and what programming might best support young children. So my focus is trying to create strategies both in communities and in schools on how we can best help our children. That's so interesting. And that wasn't on our list of things to talk about. But I'm really curious what you what kind of things have you found in terms of your research around screens and teaching with those? Well, we learned that some screening of educational programming can actually be very efficacious for young children, okay. that they learn vocabulary, they learn skills, they concentrate. It's almost, if you have really good educational media, it's almost like explicit instruction in small bits, if you can keep it at small bits. So for example, okay. we only have children watch about three minutes at most. Okay. That's all their attention, seriously, that's all their attention can really take. <clears throat> And we look at through eye tracking, so we can actually gauge their attention much better. And you can see when their attention starts falling. That means that their comprehension is also falling. Okay. So we're finding that certain media, um, good old, um, think about something like between lions, bits, a couple of bits, really can be very helpful in terms of giving children the strategies, but also the visual um, images of certain vocabulary words that can actually be very helpful for them. So helpful in small doses. Very small doses. I yeah. mean, again, we're talking three minutes at most because um, then their attention really drops off dramatically. So that might be useful for a teacher to know if I want to show a little clip to teach my class something, I'm going to keep it really brief. Exactly. We're also finding, let me just add one more thing. Um, we're finding that children who have a little bit of letter name knowledge, they actually develop um, some basic print knowledge when that print is on screen and really helpful for young children. So <coughs> programs like Noggin, which what's my word, for example, have words on top of the screen. And we find that children can actually begin to develop some print concepts, orthographic mm -hmm. mapping on the basis of very, very brief um, images on screen. 
Wonderful. Well, that's good to know. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit, um, because you, you've done so much work in this area and edited handbooks about early literacy and so on, about play-based learning, only because I don't really know much about it. I hear people talk about it um, just in conversation, like on Facebook. I, I hear people say, think, and I don't know if this is connected, but I'll hear people say, you know, these are the ways I'm teaching my three-year-old her letters, and someone else says, let them play. Um, everything should be play-based. What, what exactly does play-based mean? What does research say about that? Well, I think it means many things. So I think there's not one definition. There's some curriculum that just essentially have children going in to settings and play. Um, mm -hmm. And they get to choose their play. They get to review their play, plan, do, review. Um, in high school, for example, is a play-based curriculum. Basically, it believes that children learn through play um, and <clears throat> Teachers' interaction while children are engaged in play is a very good thing. But there are programs that are playful learning, mm -hmm. and that tends to be a little bit different. Um, okay. That could be um, a, a guided um, play-based program. So in other words, the teacher would have some goals in mind, and those particular goals would be defined or identified or play uh, engage with through play. But this is very different than just allowing children to play. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, the teacher might have objectives. They may have specific vocabulary words they want the children to learn. They might have specific goals to determine whether or not the child has learned. Um, and it's guided in ways that really provide a careful scaffolding of what children should learn. And I'm a fan of guided learning. I'm okay. not a fan of total play-based learning because mm -hmm. I think in many of our schools, we need to have some guidance and standards and goals. And those goals really help us see teaching um, in early childhood in a very different way than in kindergarten or first grade. Mm -hmm. um, it really is child-led, but also guided by the teacher so that the teacher can say by the end of uh, that guided play that children have learned certain concepts and skills. So you would say that it's okay for teachers to have um, an objective for children to learn the alphabet, for example, but the way we go about it might be different than we would in kindergarten, first grade. Is that kind of what De you're saying? Definitely. Again, we have to get in the headset of the child. And when we think of the child, they're not sitting around wanting to learn about A or A. Mm -hmm. They're sitting around learning, trying to actively engage in their world. So how can I take that engagement and those wonderful curiosities and how can I meld it in a way that help children learn their letters and their sounds, but in a meaningful way. Yeah. Another thing I hear people talk a lot about is um, like if someone is trying to teach something to someone who's young, well, that's not developmentally appropriate. Is that concept supported by research? And what is that? I don't think everybody agrees with that means either, but what, what would that mean? Right. I wrote a book on that. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and we focused on language and literacy learning and developmentally appropriate practice. And I think originally what developmentally appropriate practice was designed to do is say, look, we can give two-year-olds flashcards and they will learn their letters because they like us and they're, <laughs> they're trying to please us. So they'll learn those letters. 
But is that necessarily appropriate for a two-year-old? In other words, should they be engaged in playful learning? Should they be engaged with other children and learn social interactional skills? What is the max, what, what is the best thing we should do at what age? Mm -hmm. And I'm a fan for saying that two-year-olds should learn about how to engage with others, cooperate, share, um, uh, investigate in interesting and exciting ways. I'm all for that. Um, I'm not all for at flashcards at that mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. In fact, frankly, I would never um, want children to be using flashcards, period. Okay. Uh, but so I think developmentally appropriate was a very sort of concept. It was not an exact um, definition. Okay. But it basically said, look, at kids develop differently. Some kids learn to walk very early on. Others take more time. Let's understand that um, children's development is not one thing and that there are variances across different children based on different experiences. Let's also recognize that while some children can do some things early, do we really need to have them read at age two? No, we don't. Um, there are other more important skills, frankly, that need to be developed during those years. And then finally, the third part of developmentally appropriate practice is let's recognize that certain cultures have certain um, um, feelings about things. For example, some cultures um, don't expect um, parents to teach. They expect children to go to school and be taught. Mm -hmm. And so the parent's job would be to love and nurture their child, but not necessarily to help them with homework or anything like that. So different cultures would have different requirements or different sensibilities that might affect developmentally appropriate practice. And we need to take into account all of those things when we think about that concept. So when someone, um, thank you for explaining that, that helps a lot. But when I think about people kind of tossing that around, do you think they think there's a, a list somewhere of, of things that are appropriate by grade level? Is that what they're kind of trying to say? Um, because it feels like some people have decided this age is not appropriate for that. And this age is like, is there any sort of research at all to back that up? No. Um, and in fact, one of the things that we found, which was really disturbing, is that some teachers began to take letters down and numbers down in their pre-K classrooms because they said it was not appropriate. Mm -hmm. Who says that? Kids love to learn their letters. They love to sing the alphabet song. Um, so in other words, there's no hard and fast rule um, on what is developmentally appropriate and or not. And I think the term has been um, misused very often and often an excuse for not teaching. Um, okay. So in my view, Early childhood teachers should teach content in developmentally appropriate ways, should have objectives. Um, all of the things that our other teachers, we would expect them to have, but we do it in, in a way that is appropriate for the child's in the child's age. So you're really, when you, when you talk about developmentally appropriate, you're talking less about content and more about approach. Would that be, would that be true? That's right. That's okay. very much, you know, uh, I think that these young children come to school and they're filled with interest on learning about science concepts. I could teach 
pre pretty sophisticated content, uh, concepts to young children, very young children, mm -hmm. but do it in a way that is really meaningful to them. You know, get outside, explore their world. Mm -hmm. Uh, look at those beautiful colors and then understand what those color names are. Not by, you know, sitting in a class and learning, you know, what is yellow and what is blue. So it really requires a teacher to be really conscious of the things she wants her students to learn and then have sort of flexible plans for, for teaching those things. Would that make sense? Yes. Flexible plans that vary according to the development or the, the, where the child is. Um, some of the things, one of the most challenging things that teachers will find is even in a pre-click class, there are children who have not had many experiences on, you know, in book reading or experiences and a whole bunch of, of, things that other kids will have. And there'll be a, a diverse set of skills and strategies that these kids have and trying to find um, activities that meet the needs of these different children um, is sometimes a, a real challenge. Yeah. It's the art of teaching that you, you yeah, just learn over time. So you've written so many things, um, which I now I need to dive into all of it. But especially what I what I most what I've loved most recently is your book all about words that you wrote with Tanya Wright. It's a very very accessible book about um, building vocabulary and oral language with young kids, and really it goes up to second grade. I highly recommend this for anybody. It's a short read and very practical. Can you talk a little bit about um, how preschoolers and specific preschool teachers can build oral language and vocabulary? Maybe some of the the more appropriate ways. Yeah, sure. Um... One of the things I'd like to just start out with saying is that oral language and vocabulary in my world are slightly different. Yes. When you and I talk to young children, we will try to use colloquial language for the most part. We may enter into a couple of sophisticated words like that's gigantic. Um, but our goal in oral language development is to create a, a conversation, an ongoing conversation with children. And as a result, we'll often use common language, common terms um, to expand and enhance that conversation. But vocabulary development is often the language of schooling. Um, mm -hmm. And we focus some of our children will come to school and they'll have a rich oral language, but they won't necessarily have had experiences with books and with um, other um, opportunities to learn more the language of schooling, which is more formal, um, sometimes a greater concept load, uh, more dense in 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 um, materials. And so therefore we started a program that um, is called WOW. <laughs> and the reason we, we did that is we wanted the children to come to school and say, wow. <laughs> and it's actually the world of words. Um, okay. Basically what we did is we said, children learn vocabulary best when things are connected. They have to be connected to children's worlds. So in other words, when children... Uh, learn about weather. They can learn so much about weather when we give them books that focus on different kinds of weather so that they see repeated words in different contexts again and again. And all about words is really about helping children begin to develop concepts that are related to um, common um, groupings of words. 
And what we know is that when that begins to happen, children develop concepts or categories. And categories are the foundation of conceptual learning or comprehension. And so in our work, what we've moved from is how do we teach vocabulary in very visual ways because children are visual and their long-term memory is is developed when we teach them something that is very visual that then becomes part of their long-term memory. When we group things in ways that ah oh, makes sense for children in interesting topics. So one of our topics, for example, is called wild weather, not just weather. It's not <laughs> just rain. It's, you know, um, blizzards and it's mm -hmm. all sorts of interesting things and children are just fascinated and what they do is they begin to understand the difference between wild weather like a blizzard and just it's snowing or mm -hmm. it's you know they begin to develop differences in concepts and that concepts will enable them to go to third grade, fourth grade, and really develop the kinds of um, comprehension background knowledge that they will need in order to be successful. So we've been very successful in teaching vocabulary very early on, again, in very developmental ways through books and talking and experiences. Well, in your book, you talk about text sets, and, I, and that, I really love that idea where you develop, you put together a set of books, fiction and nonfiction, both, on a particular topic. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So we've grouped these books. We have five books in a text set, and the text set often begins with um, predictable books. Predictable books are very easy for children to remember. So for example, if I do brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? Most of the children, if I'm in pre-K, will say, <laughs> you know, brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? I see a green frog looking at me and they'll memorize it. They just do it. They will use their entire body to express themselves. Young children are very physical. And so what we do is we begin with predictable books because what we're trying to convey to children is I'm not reading to children, I'm reading with children. And your collective responses are part of the reading experience and I want you to experience it. So we begin with very predictable books and they become mnemonic devices for young children. They will remember it, you know. I'll say to my students, eating once, eating twice, eating chicken soup with rice, right? And they'll still remember it. It, it might have occurred when they were five years old. But those books, again, are very memorable. And then we'll move to what we call a narrative nonfiction. Narrative nonfiction are um, storybooks that have a good beginning, middle, and end, yet they'll often have the same vocabulary that the predictable book had. So children have a mindset already for what those words are, and then they're applying it now to story, which is a little bit more complex than a predictable book. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll recall and we'll engage them with lots of interactive talk. And then our final book in this text set is an informational book. And this is a book that is strictly informational and will likely have more dense material and more 
higher concept load, but it will have the same vocabulary that they've heard from predictable book to narrative book, now to informational. So, hey, they're successful. They're, they're mastered these words again and again in very different contexts, in very different genre. So what they're learning is the differences in genre features, but they're also learning the differences in words. And as they experience those words, it's going deeper and deeper and deeper into long-term memory. Right. So instead of just reading a book on weather today and a book on community helpers tomorrow, we, we read a set of books over time. And in the back of your book, All About Words, there's some examples of text sets. So teachers can choose those books of different genres and then make a list of, you've got a list of topic words, challenge words, and supportive words. Can you talk about the difference between the, the vocabulary types? So when we talk about text sets and topic words, we're, we're generally trying to focus on nouns because nouns create mental imagery. And I often use, I'll often use a picture support for um, for those nouns. So I'm trying to show children what they are and try to get them into um, a, an image that they can call up and recall. And um, and those words will be sort of the centerpiece of what a text set will have. Then we focus on supportive words and supportive words are words that support your ability to talk about something. So in other words, one of our topic words might be goldfish. Um, one of our uh, supportive words might be fishbowl. Where, where, okay. where, do, where do fish live in, at home in a fishbowl? Mm -hmm. But we're not gonna focus too much on that word because it's not very common. They won't see it tons of time, but it helps them and supports them in how they are um, learning words. And then our final category is challenge words. Now, these are really fun. So <coughs> in our text sets, what we'll also do is we'll say, time for a challenge. What's the challenge? So then we'll say, today we're talking about pets. And we know that pets are um, tame and they live with people, right? And so I'm going to show you a picture and you tell me whether it's a pet or not a pet. And this is a word that's newly introduced and I'll show them a picture of a snake. And they'll say, is a, is a snake a pet or not a pet? And some children will say, well, it's not a pet because it lives outside and pets live inside with people. Other people might say, I found a garter snake and it's become a pet and I take care of it and it's become tame. So in other words, the challenge word is designed to really engage children in identifying what is or what is not a member of that conceptual hmm. grouping or category. And what it helps children do is it helps children extend their vocabulary beyond um, what they have just learned. It not only does that, it concretizes the sense of the category or the concept. So in other words, I can clearly say, we'll say to a child, is a spider um, uh, an insect? And the child will say, no, a spider is not an insect because an insect has six legs and three body parts mm -hmm. and a spider has eight. Now you might think, 
that that's very sophisticated. And it is. But we have four-year-olds who are doing that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we know is that with developmentally appropriate instruction, we can accelerate learning, but in ways that really engage children in fun activities and thinking. Yeah, and kids kids like vocabulary. I know um, uh, my youngest, so he's in second grade now, but I used, uh, when I was reading a lot to him before he went to school, we were reading a bunch of Jack, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk books, and one of the words was bargain, so I taught him the word bargain. Um, and for, I don't know, at least a year afterwards, anytime he heard the word bargain, he was like, mom, bargain. I know what that means. You know, they do, they do, uh, notice those things. So let's switch gears a little bit. We talked a little bit more about, you know, comprehension vocabulary, but what about, um, getting kids ready for the code? So, you know, learning the alphabet and sounds, um, maybe even sounding out words, phonemic awareness. What do you feel is the best way, the best approach for preschool teachers? when it comes to getting kids ready to read, or even maybe some of the kids reading? What do you think about so, that? So we we need to teach phonological awareness in those early years. And essentially what that is, and I want to make clear, is that it's not phonics. It's, um, it's phonological awareness is the ability to hear and distinguish sounds in words. And when we move toward phonemic awareness, we're interested in having them hear individual sounds in those words. And so what we do in, um, in preschool is we do an activity every single day that focuses on phonological and phonemic awareness. First thing, we teach the alphabet. Al alphabet skills are really important because they begin to help children identify print in their environment. In other words, it makes them more aware of print in their environment. And they love it. Because they feel, I always say to the children, it's the Pledge of Allegiance to Literacy in schools. <laughs> and, and what it means is that, you know, we, we begin with the alphabet song. We teach a few letters at a time. Um, over uh, a short period of time, children really do know their letters. Um, they know them in sequence and out of sequence. Um, but teachers are very good at doing the alphabet on the whole. They are not as good about phonological awareness, which is sounding, the sound. And we do very simple games, you know, with children. We begin with, you know, just some common books. For example, um, I'm going on a bear hunt, um, uh, where we teach uh, uh, children to just repeat words, you know, going on a bear hunt. You know, I'm not scared <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, and do all sorts of things where they're using their hands and they're using their bodies to, to to segment words in a sentence. And then we move to to rhyming activities, which are so fun. And um, teachers should be singing to the children and singing with the children every single day. Um, and doing some very simple rhyme activities. You know, I'm going to say two words. Uh, the, the word is bat and beg. Do they rhyme? No. Um, so the teacher can do some very, very simple activities and rhyming. And then we encourage segmenting and, and blending, um, which is, again, very easy to do. I'm going to say a word, let's segment it, you know, and we have teachers who will do something like b at bat, um, where we get children to segment and blend 
words. Uh, teachers should not segment unless they also blend those words together. And okay. I encourage teachers to do this for 10 minutes a day, just 10 minutes, but make sure it's in your lesson plan. Because if you say, yeah. oh, hey, I'm going to get to it, it doesn't happen. And I encourage them to get rid of some of the boring calendar activities, which <laughs> take a lot of time in circle time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not so sure how exciting that is to young children. So mm -hmm. I think that um, circle time can be really a time where they talk about you know, scheduling, phonological awareness, and a good shared book reading. Yeah. So moving on to like, how about writing in preschool? Um, so, you know, some kids, depending on their spelling development, actually can um, use a letter or two or more to represent words. Um, what can you tell me about that? Well, children will need to focus on their writing. Uh, it's very evident when I go into classrooms, what places are focusing on writing and what are not. I think um, some um, very basic um, encoding activities are great for these children. So, for example, um, I'm going to say the word bad. Can you write the first sound of um, the letter that made that sound. So children should have some practice in writing um, and just forming the letters. Um, what we do is we focus on uppercase before we focus on lowercase. And the reason is because their hand uh, muscles aren't necessarily well developed. It's hard for some of these children to write. So the writing shouldn't take tons of times. But whenever I get a chance to go into a classroom and ask the child to write their name, which is the first thing they should begin to write, they're so delighted. They love it because um, it's a sign of literacy. And sometimes they fall in love with certain letters and just will write the same letters again and again and again. But I encourage teachers to have a little writing center in their classroom with a big fat pencils and maybe markers and paper right there so the children can actually practice their writing. Well, we could just go on and on. There's so many things that you know about. And I, if, I wish people could see this because you have such a big smile on your face when you talk about all the things. You're obviously very, very passionate about what you do, which is so wonderful. I w I'd like to talk at the end a little bit about some of your favorite things that you've written or shared. But first, um, you have done some interesting work eliminating book deserts. Can you talk about what that means and what you've done? Well, I have to say this is a, a absolute passion for me. Um, when I first went to Temple University, I took a walk with um, families and I realized that if I took a walk to their school, I would literally find no books in their environment. There was no print in, in some areas of poverty in the city. And I began to recognize the difference in some environments compared to others, that some environments were flush with opportunities to read and library right there and, you know, bookstores right there. And other places were just um, 
there was just no opportunity for children to read or see books. And the problem is even exacerbated during the summer when Head Starts are closed, when lots of childcare programs turn into camps, which are wonderful, but um, not necessarily print rich environments. And so um, I have worked hard in many different ways to really promote more access to books. And one of the things I've done most recently is really focus on reaching families where they are. Let us understand better where communities do their work, where people in their communities do their work. And some parents, frankly, are a little bit frightened of going to the library. Okay. They're worried that they have library card problems, and they have privacy issues. They worry that it's an institution and they won't know exactly what to do in, you know, mm -hmm. and how to select a book or who to talk to. They're a little bit awed by the librarian who is wonderful and supportive, but still a little bit awed. And as a result, what we've done is we've begun to say, Instead of expecting families to go to a library or to go to a bookstore, could we bring books to where they are? And so we focused on um, bringing books in, putting books in laundromats, putting books in barber shops, mm -hmm. um, and um, putting books in um, homeless shelters, uh, so social service communities. We're working now and hopefully we'll get funded um, to put books in visitation areas in um, for incarcerated parents. Mm. Um, many, my belief is when children begin to see books early in their world, you know, very early in their environment, there comes to be an expectation that books are part of growing up and yeah. part of our lives. And when they're beautiful and shiny, they act like toys for children. And you'll see, if you go in these settings, you'll see that they actually pick them up and bring them to their parents mm -hmm. because they want to be read to. And so that's been the greatest emphasis of our work in recent years, really trying to find places so that, um, Children are literally surrounded by books in every opportunity they have. That is that is amazing and very inspiring. Do you have a is there like a website or an organization that's running this or No, I just, you know, I work with organizations. So right now I'm working with Barbershop Books. Okay. I've been working with um, Too Small to Fail, um, First Book. Many of these organizations are trying to bring books to families. And so I've had the, and JetBlue, how could I forget JetBlue organization? Um, many of the organizations actually have social responsibility offices. And so I've been working with those offices to bring books to many different uh, communities. We've done it all across the country. That's amazing. So all the years that you've been working um, what are some of the things that you're most proud of? Like you've written so many, you've edited so many books, written so many articles. What do you want people to know most, to see most? Well, I want them um, to be a bit more sensitive and flexible and respectful of families who live in poverty. Their lives are difficult and Many times we've had interventions that actually say, be like me, 
um, middle class, um, spending time with our children all the time. And these parents have three jobs sometimes. They're struggling to make their rent and to buy food for their families. And so what I've tried in much of my work is to sensitize people to other ways of thinking you know, other ways of let's get out of our mindset and into the mindset of someone who is living in extreme um, difficulty. Let's understand that. And the second thing I think I've tried to do is, as I mentioned before, I've tried to often think like a child and design interventions that speak to the child's and their interest and their engagement. And I am convinced absolutely convinced that we underestimate so many of our children's capacities to learn and to think and to explore. And, you know, I go into these rooms and I see these bright eyes, these beautiful children, and I say, giving them an opportunity, just look at what they're capable of. And I often want to take a snapshot and just show people um, and try to convince them that we are we 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 are wasting so much um, human capital that could be so helpful and so promising in our culture. So I guess those are the things that I've really tried to convey in my research. Sometimes I used to say to my graduate students, "I want to write a research article that will make people cry." Mm. And it will make people understand that it's not just about numbers. It's about real people experiencing real hardship. Let's understand. Let's be a little bit more um, thoughtful and understanding. Well, thank you for that and for all the work that you've done. Are you, do you have any current projects that you would like to share? Well, we're looking at, um, we're currently in um, schools in, again, high poverty communities, focusing on knowledge building curriculum and okay. um, the promise of engaging children in rich content learning while doing, again, developmentally appropriate activities. And that's really, really exciting. The other thing that we are focusing on is how can we use um, video and books together as a strategy to help children both find reading more engaging, frankly, and um, accentuate and accelerate learning. So um, those are the two projects that we're currently engaged in. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'll be sure in the show notes to link to as many things of yours that I can find. <laughs> There's oh, quite a lot. That might take a while. <laughs> thank you um, so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. Take care. You can find the show notes for today's episode at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 156. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.